and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Today, we're looking at Season 4, Episode 10 of Star Trek Discovery, entitled The Galactic Barrier. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Michael Merrick, the media professor. You can find our announcements about new episodes and other content by following us on Twitter at Trek underscore Academy. To subscribe your app to the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. And you can either subscribe right there or find links to us on other podcast sites. And Rodney, push is coming to shove next week when we have two new Star Trek episodes, both Discovery and Picard. And for three weeks, we'll have uh, new episodes in each of those two series, just like the good old days when we had TNG and Deep Space Nine on at the same time or Deep Space Nine and Voyager. So we said last week that we're going to do separate podcast episodes for the next three weeks when both series are having the new episodes, but we won't be able to do them on the same day. It's just kind of beyond our planning resources. We did a Twitter poll and the advice there is to do the Picard podcast first and then the Discovery podcast. And so that's kind of what we're planning. Most likely our Picard podcast will drop around supper time, Sunday, US time. And our Discovery episode will follow Monday or if there's a complication, maybe Wednesday but we'll keep people posted as to what's happening on Twitter. Okay, and if you participated in that poll, we thank you for doing that. At this point, what we do is a brief plot outline of the galactic barrier. There are spoilers ahead, so if you haven't seen the episode yet, you should know that, but we are leaving out some details. We're not putting those in the summary. So in any event, this will uh, refresh your memory if you listen to the podcast later. So with our summary, here is Professor Michael Merrick. Discovery takes the entire episode to make its way through the galactic barrier, which is way more complicated than it was for Kirk and Spock when their ship got hijacked by the Kelvins a long time ago. Doing so requires programmable antimatter to protect the shields, and that may be how the Kelvins did it. Discovery also has to kind of surf between bubbles of technobabble within the barrier to get from one side to the other without just being totally destroyed. Even so, they sustain a lot of damage. President Relic is on the ship, and she and Burnham develop a reasonable working relationship. The bad news is that the new DMA is more powerful than the last one and has moved to a different place where... In a frequent Star Trek trope, it's threatening Earth and Navarre and also Titan, of course. Book and Tarka are still on the loose, and they go to the abandoned place where Tarka was held prisoner by the Emerald Chain to get their own programmable antimatter so they can cross the barrier. In a series of flashbacks, we learn the story of the alien scientist Tarka was held captive with and their plan to go to a parallel universe that is... Uh, supposedly idyllic, according to legend. Tarka at first betrayed the guy, but when they were in prison together, they became friends or maybe something more. And Tarka had to leave him behind with the promise that they would each find their way to this other universe. Finally, Saru and the Navari ambassador 
Tarina are contemplating their relationship, Saru confesses that it might be more than just friendship, and Tarina makes a last-minute decision to go on the 10C first contact mission on Discovery. Anyway, now that they're finally through the barrier, they're going to go on a side mission, or at least send some people on a side mission to a planet over there that doesn't seem to have life on it, but they're going to go see if anything there tells them anything about what's inside the 10C blob. And that is a quick look at the episode. Okay, well, before we talk about the philosophy and the themes and the morals to the story, there are uh, quite a few things this time, I think, that we'd like to talk about. And I'd, I'd like to start by mentioning this obscure piece of dialogue at the beginning of the episode. So Kovic tells everyone that he's not going on the mission because he has other urgent matters to attend to. And when Earth Sendoye says she can't think of anything that would be more urgent than this, he says that he intends to keep it that way. What is he working on? Sounds very mysterious to me. Could be planting seeds, certainly. Well, I want to talk about the galactic barrier. The barrier was first seen in the original series, and I don't believe it has been since. It was actually kind of an inconvenient thing that a lot of people hoped Star Trek would just forget because it isn't really possible for there to be a real galactic barrier and there is no defined edge of the galaxy. What we saw in this episode is really nothing like what we saw in the original series, either the actual original or the remastered versions. The remastered version was elegant, by the way. But of course, they have to drag things out and spend the entire episode getting across because, to be blunt, they have a storyline here for this season that is maybe worth six or seven episodes, and they're telling it over 13 episodes. Yeah, it, it feels to me like they're taking a lot more time to tell this story than they really need. I, I agree with you. And if this next episode is going to be devoted entirely to this side mission, which wouldn't surprise me given what we've yeah. seen so far, they had better make it interesting. I mean... Just give us a payoff, something maybe that would tell us just a little bit about 10C to reward our patients, you know? Yeah, it, this is not the first time a Starfleet ship has crossed the barrier. The Kelvins from the Andromeda Galaxy hijacked Kirk's Enterprise and modified the shields to get through the barrier. And, and they got through the barrier pretty easily, actually. Yeah. The references in Discovery to negative energy associated with the barrier do come from those original series uh, episodes. Kirk's Enterprise also entered the barrier in the episode, Is There New Truth in Beauty? And it encountered a space-time continuum void within the barrier that required a Medusan to help navigate out of it. But that void doesn't really seem to be the same as the bubbles that Discovery surfed through. And I think there's an illusion here to um, the original series. I just wanted to insert this here. At the start of the mission, uh, Burnham tells everyone on the ship, there's a shipwide channel. When I was a child, I, like many of you, dreamed of going where no one has gone before. And to me, that feels like a reference to that first episode in which we saw the galactic barrier entitled Where No Man Has Gone Before. Right, and then more recently, the, the phrase has been revised to be where no one has gone before to be uh, not be gender-specific. But right. uh, certainly, certainly, 
as we've noted in the past, and I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the galactic barrier is not something that can exist in the real world. I think fans have speculated that maybe it could be explained, rationalized by being artificial, created by some species. But, I mean, who knows what species might have created it or for what purpose. My guess has always been, and just trying to rationalize it in my own mind, that it's for one of two things, either to keep something outside the galaxy from coming in or to keep us in, keep us from getting outside. And by us, I mean any living beings within within the galaxy. Mm. I mean, I think it is possible that we will learn that the barrier itself was created by the Tin Sea. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that is not how it turns out, and I suspect it's not how it will turn out, the writers should have let the barrier stay an original series thing. And if they had to drag out the story, found some other way to do it. But uh, <laughs> um, just having the barrier exist without better explanation is not going to serve Star Trek well. You know, they could serve Star Trek well, though, by maybe uh, explaining this galactic barrier is something yeah. the 10C erected. I mean, that, that could be worthwhile. But if I was dredging the Milky Way for Boronite and I didn't want to be bothered, I might try to erect a barrier. I mean, that, that could make sense. I would explain it, yeah. you know, if it's there to keep us away from species 10C. You know, we'll see what the Discovery writers have to say about it. You know, hopefully they don't disappoint us here. You know, the barrier has been there in Star Trek time a long time since at least the 2060s. So, you know, from from this century we're in now, that's how long ago from that original second pilot episode where no man has gone before, the Valiant encountered the barrier Mm -hmm. around the, the 2060s. So it's been there for over a thousand years before the current discovery season. And you'd think if the DMA is something that is central to not just the 10C, but the barrier itself, mm. you'd think Starfleet might have encountered a DMA before this in, in a thousand years, or at least detected one far off in the distance or something. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I guess switching topics here a little bit, we, we meet someone in this episode, Dr. Harai, an astrolinguist who's always shown snacking on something, by the way. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but anyway, he, he says that since they know nothing about species 10C, it's naive to assume that they could use the universal translator to communicate with them. And this reminded me of that Next Generation episode, The Chase, that really good episode, well, I liked it, where we learned that all humanoid life in the galaxy has this common ancestor. And I think maybe for that reason, it might be reasonable to assume that they can communicate with the 10C with the Universal Translator if 10C is from this galaxy. But, you know, the Kelvins were from Andromeda and the Enterprise crew had no problem communicating with them, right? Yeah, from the chase, I'm not sure if absolutely all humanoid life had the common ancestor, but the, uh, what were they, the progenitors, they, they certainly mm-hmm. did seed life. And so humans and Vulcans and Klingons, and I don't remember who else was involved in that. The uh, Romulans they, and the yeah, Cardassians. They, yeah, they do have a common genetic ancestry uh, way back. My assumption has always been that the universal translator in some way reads minds, basically. Because that would be about the only way to rapidly extract meaning from words. I mean, you hear words 
that you've never heard before and have no background context for them, you can't generate meaning. There's got to be some kind of underlying process for, for understanding. And we know that at least sometimes the universal translator doesn't work immediately. There was a Deep Space Nine episode in which it took hours, I think, for it all of a sudden to start translating. And I think that this facilitating the universal translator is the purpose of the often mentioned but never explained mm. lingua code that ships sometimes send to each other. I think the first time we heard about it was in Star Trek The Motion Picture, where they were sending lingua code to V'ger and not getting an answer back. But oh, okay. I think essentially what that is, is some kind of database, some kind of common source database that anybody should be able to, to read and plug into their own universal translators. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that does ring a bell. I mean, we could maybe add into this, I think it was Noam Chomsky who hypothesized that human beings are able to communicate because, you know, we have this language center in our brain and it explains why there's so many similarities among human languages, you know, and maybe that, that might be true galaxy wide. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And we could also add to this Donald Davidson's philosophical argument that, you know, if you're not able to translate something that looks like linguistic behavior, that's reason to believe that it's not linguistic behavior, that there's no language behavior going on there at all. Well, and, and the other point to think about, as long as we're talking about this, is that among humans, not all communication is verbal. There is mm -hmm. a lot of, I don't remember percentage-wise, 30% of communication is nonverbal from facial expressions and gestures and things like that. So, and we can't assume that those would be common among species from different planets either. No, I guess not. However, I guess you have to say the universal translator is kind of a plot device used all the time in Star Trek to make the story flow smoother. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't have time to spend on, you know, maybe a quick allusion to the time it takes to translate, but we don't have time to spend on that. And it kind of explains why every species seems to speak English. Well, they're not really, but we're seeing the effects of the universal translator. Tarka and his friend wanting to get to a utopian parallel universe is reminiscent of The Way to Eden in the original series, mm -hmm. and also to movie number five uh, with Cybok wanting to get to Shakari. You remember in both cases, it turned out badly. Yes. So I wonder whether if Tarka actually ever gets there, It'll be filled with acid plants, like in The Way to Eden, or mm. godlike aliens, uh, like in Star Trek V. Yeah. Well, that would be very sad. I mean, hasn't Oros suffered enough already? We, uh, we'll see. I mean, if, if they really are using that inspiration from past Star Trek, the utopia is not as good as expected, might well be, be what we get. And speaking of Tarka and Oros, as they got to know each other better... Did it strike you that maybe eventually they became lovers? Their body language lying in bed sure. together in the one scene certainly kind of suggests that. Oh, definitely. I was thinking the same thing. And I was thinking it would explain Tarka's determination to travel to Kyalis, this idyllic parallel universe, and find Oros there. And I was thinking also, I mean, it wouldn't be surprising if they became more than friends under these conditions, right? They're imprisoned together. I think they never get out. They're in this brutal emerald chain work camp. Wouldn't surprise me. 
it could just be strong affection, not being in love as such. I don't want to take this comparison too far, but people often snuggle with their pets and things, and that's not what I'm suggesting mm-hmm. the relationship between Tarka and Oros was. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly showed a strong bond, which Tarka is then following through on in doing his Tarka stuff to, uh, yeah. to get at the power source of the DMA. We get a fun little reference uh, from Kovic about the Vulcans having watched Earth for a century mm. before making contact. And this is not new. We already knew from the episode Carbon Creek in Enterprise, which was the yeah. story of a Vulcan ship crashing in Pennsylvania in 1957. Yeah, it's a good episode. I like that one. Yeah, me too. And also more than one Star Trek book like Strangers from the Skies, which I liked, except for one little plot element I didn't like. But So some of the books have also suggested the Vulcans are here watching us right now, even as we speak. Although the books themselves are not binding on on screen continuity. First contact between the humans and Vulcans, remember, is in uh, 2063 or 41 years from now uh, as we're recording this. And unfortunately, in Star Trek continuity, we have to have a massive nuclear war before uh, that happens 41 years from now. Thank you, Star Trek. Thanks, Star Trek. Earlier, you mentioned these uh, fireworks between Tarina and Saru. Well, in this episode. they're not fireworks other than maybe for a non-emotional Vulcan, but they're, well, oh, there's something, yes. There's something there. Uh, there was a nice shot, by the way, I wanted to point out. They're sitting in Discovery's lounge together, and Saru is on one side of the frame, Tarina's on the other, and in between them, you can see the fire burning in the lounge's fireplace. And, Pretty nice, though obvious, I guess, symbolism there. Yeah, the fire itself, and then because of the light from the fire, they're both in a very warm mm. lighting, which which also um, is a signal of emotions. I was wondering, I have to admit, I mean, your symbolism is great, but why do they have a fire going when they're in so much danger on this on this crisis mission, the barrier turbulence, although I think maybe they hadn't gotten there when this scene happened, but you know, anytime discovery spins around to use the mycelial network, you can imagine fire going all through the lounge, burning people, all that stuff. (laughs) Um, Shouldn't you like turn it off when you're on a dangerous mission (laughs) or is it maybe just a hologram? I don't know. Well, I I assumed holographic, but uh, hopefully, hopefully somebody has been thinking about that. Yeah. So, is it time to discuss meanings, morals, messages at this point? I guess we can't uh, put it off any further. I have to say, I didn't find much philosophy or much of a lesson that the writers want us to learn from this episode. Yeah, I'll, me neither. First, let me be a little snarky here. Don't double cross people because they might turn out to be friends down the road. That's a lesson from this episode. Yeah. If somebody double crosses you, lock them out of controls of your starship right away so they don't double cross you again. Although some (laughs) of that was from a lesson from last week, too. Win-win is better than win-lose. Oh, definitely. That's a message here. Definitely. Um, Slightly more seriously, uh, support each other. There was a scene I didn't mention in the summary, but a scene between Stamets and Adira uh, that we haven't uh, really mentioned. It's a nice scene uh that really has to do with with the relationship between them and stamets supporting adira but it's it's still not really a very deep philosophical message um biggest 
message I can get here is that people of goodwill can work out their differences if they talk to each other. Mm. And that's based on the Relic Burnham subplot. Saru yeah. talked last week about focusing on areas of agreement. But even more than that, this week we saw the two women focusing on their shared goals. And, and really, that is why people do things. They have some kind of, it may be conscious, it may be unconscious, but they some, have some kind of reason or objective for the things they do, particularly things they do that affect other, other people. And the better we can understand people's motivations, the better we can find common ground with them. Okay, yeah. I mean, um, that that recalls um, messages we've seen in previous episodes this season. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree with you. I sort of fixated on one piece of dialogue at the end of the episode when Rillick tells Burnham that she's grateful that they had a chance to connect. And Burnham says, well, if we can't communicate with each other, what chance do we have with Species 10C? So I agree. That, that sort of summarizes this theme of connection uh, for this episode and for the season, and it's getting reiterated here. So I agree with you. Rillick and Burnham's understanding, though, is contrasted against Tarka, who has been pretty effective. You can't call it anything other than manipulating Book mm-hmm. since they met. And Book really hasn't caught on yet. Manipulated about taking off on Book's ship, manipulated about stealing the next generation spore drive, manipulated about fending off Discovery last week manipulated about Tarka not getting in trouble with Book for bombing the DMA, mm. and, and now manipulating him about this programmable matter and about his, kind of his sob story about his friendship with Oros. Book is surprisingly gullible in several episodes here for someone who was apparently a pretty effective carrier and had lots of occasions to mistrust or trust people. Yeah, I mean... You know, if I had to find an excuse for him, he's traumatized. And I don't think I've ever been. So my opinion probably doesn't count for much. But I agree, even in this kind of a state, he seems weirdly clueless. On a related note, you were talking about Tarka's sob story. We got his, some background here in this episode that you talked about. For me, anyway, it made him more sympathetic. So I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning all of this because, you know, we can't forget, we shouldn't forget that Tarka is a bad guy. And he admits that to Booker in this episode, by the way. We should trust him on that. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's more sympathetic because of his friendship or whatever it was with Oros. Yeah. But he admits that when they were first put in the, and it wasn't just a prison cell, it was like a prison science lab. But when mm-hmm. when they were first put together, Tarka had pre-double-crossed, pre-betrayed Oros by yeah. making a promise to, uh, to to report on him. So yeah, that's the kind of person he is deep down, even if he does make a, a connection there that makes him a little bit sympathetic. But there are very much two sides to his personality, to his story. I guess it does redeem him somewhat that he does seem genuinely guilty, or he seems to feel guilty about that. You know, but that's not enough. You, you shouldn't trust that guy. He does. And, the, and there's one scene where it's clear that he, he still wants to get that power source, you know, get, get across the barrier because now it appears the power source is over there and he still wants to go to his parallel universe. But that win-win situation in which he says in the process of doing that will save 
don't know if he says millions or billions of lives. Billions. A lot of lives. So, so again, that, that makes him a little bit more sympathetic in that he is willing to embrace what is essentially Book's goal, uh, along with his own, as mm-hmm. both being important. So, any final thoughts or conclusions about this episode, Michael? From my comments so far, listeners may see the foreshadowing that I think all in all, this is a pretty lame episode. My wife calls it the worst since the first season of Discovery. Wow. And I'm getting really tired of episodes which make only microscopic progress on the story arc. An entire episode to get, I don't know that it's even a light year, to get a short distance through the barrier which is way different than everything we've known about the barrier before. 900 years in the future after Kirk, Starship Shield should be able to handle the barrier without trouble. And the Kelvins handled it without much trouble. I don't see why Starfleet couldn't 900 years in the future. I wouldn't be surprised, and and we both kind of alluded to this earlier, if next week's story is just about visiting that planet near the blob, the blob of the 10th Sea, And by the end of the episode, we still wouldn't have gotten around to substantial first contact. And they're saving that for the last two episodes of what they hope will be the thrilling season finale, finally getting to (laughs) what they've been tiptoeing around for for several episodes. I'm, I'm sorry to say it because I do like Discovery all in all, but I suspect that those, the, the finale and that maybe a two episode season finale will still pale in comparison to the new Picard episodes. Uh, May I expound a little bit more? Sure. This is our podcast. I don't see any reason why the mycelial network should not extend past the barrier. We can see through the barrier. Of course, when there's not a ship there, it's invisible, but we can see through it. Electromagnetic radiation can pass through it. The view screens show that there are still some stars outside the barrier, Mm -hmm presumably some with planets and possibly some with life. But the spore drive doesn't jump only to places where these mushrooms that the spores come from. It jumps into open space every time. Yeah. So why not open space a few light years from where they came out last week? Not being able to use the spore drive to get to the 10C blob. It's a plot device and they're using it to overcomplicate and stretch out the story. And having said that, I've complained a lot, but I don't necessarily blame the writer of the episode. And I didn't go back to look and see who the writer is, but the storyline for the whole season was outlined ahead of time. I think before anyone started writing even the first script, they had the storyline plotted out. And the writer likely got handed a list of, here's what happens in this episode, go write it. And the writer had to make it work as well as, as possible. If I were writing the story from here on, the 10C would have no malevolent intent mm. with the DMA. They would, in fact, apologize for the damage it caused, saying they had no idea, and explain that they created the galactic barrier to protect the galaxy from something. And finding out what that bigger-than-ever danger would be would essentially be the cliffhanger for next season, if I were writing it. I like that, Michael. That sounds so Star Trek to me. That, that's the sort of thing you would expect from Star Trek. I agree. But, you know, we often have had the plot twist in Star Trek that the bad guys aren't really bad guys when we understand them. Now, let me say, 
and I'm talking for the moment here about real world, not Star Trek universe. Okay. There is a real world, massive gravitational anomaly, hundreds of millions of light years away that is pulling our galaxy towards it. It's hidden from our view by the bulge of the center of the Milky Way galaxy, but it appears to be a, a collection, a massive collection of more than 20, maybe more than 20 ancient galaxies that are all kind of simultaneously colliding with each other. It's called the Great Attractor because mm. it is such a strong magnetic field that is pulling a lot of things into it. And when galaxies collide, particularly where more than two are doing it at the same time, it can really mess a bunch of stuff up. And the Milky Way galaxy is moving in the direction of the Great Attractor. It will hit it in only about 15 million years. Okay. <laughs> Plus, there's also that pesky Andromeda galaxy that's rushing towards us. It's going to head us in maybe only 5 million years. And then there are some dwarf galaxies mm. around the Milky Way that kind of play ping pong with us. They come in and bounce out and all that over, over cosmic timescales. So, yes, it'll take us a long time. I was joking about only 15 million years. Yeah. Take us a long time to get to the Great Attractor or to get hit by Andromeda. But still, I could imagine uh, a super advanced and super long-lived species wanting to protect the galaxy. And also, you notice they created a barrier around the place they live outside the galaxy. And you have to assume that's to protect themselves. And hmm. that's, I don't know, that's how I might plot out the story from here if it was up to me. Uh, of course, there could still be other big bads out there in intergalactic space that the barrier is protecting us from, or it could be something else completely. You know, it could be that the Tensi need that hyperfield to pr protect themselves from sort of some sort of techno babble threat yeah. that affects intergalactic space, and yeah, that's either, what the barrier is for, maybe. Either either bad 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 super bad guys out there between galaxies, or some other kind of threat. Again. The barrier may have nothing to do with the 10C other than that they're close to it. I hope that we get some kind of better explanation of the yeah. barrier since they decided to use it. Yeah. But we'll see. We don't have too many weeks left, uh, and we'll see. If my idea were how the writers have things plotted out, then learning the real threat at the end of this season, in a way, it's a cliffhanger. But it wouldn't really be a cliffhanger because the danger is so far away you know, 5 million years or more. And that would allow discovery, we could only hope, to transform into a more episodic <laughs> series like Strange New Worlds and like almost every NCIS police procedural show mm, out there right. is, is today. I really think after four seasons of galaxy-wide threats, yeah, uh, I think it's time for discovery to do something different next season. And I suspect that Strange New Worlds is going to succeed with their approach of essentially the, the main plot each week being episodic, but the, the continuing story arc being the character relationships and, and in most cases, the B-plot. I suspect that's going to work for Strange New Worlds. I would like to see Discovery do that. So in closing, about the best I can say about this episode is that it does give us some worthwhile character development and that at least partially mitigates its lameness. <laughs> okay, you want to hear my complaint? Sure. 
I, I've made this uh, similar sort of complaint in the past, but I'm going to do it again here. My guess is that it's incredibly unlikely, given the size of the galaxy and the massive vastness of space between planetary systems, that the DMA would endanger not one, not two, but three known systems this season, right? Earth, Navarre, and Quajon. That's so unbelievable. And that's even if Boronite, I think, is found only around planetary systems and, and not interstellar space. Again, thinking about how many planetary systems there are in the galaxy, how big the galaxy is, how much space there is between them. So this threat, this sudden threat to Earth and Navarre, and this timetable that it's setting up, it just seems, it's so contrived. It really irks me, Michael. Yeah, the, the threat to Earth, you know, the massive threat to Earth, Star Trek has done that so many times. And, you know, once you're a wit, twice you're a half wit. And how many times has it been now? It's <laughs> Okay, so I, I did a little math, though. Uh, the original DMA, they told us, if a planet was within 12 astronomical units of the original DMA, we were told it would undergo fatal gravitational mm. shearing. And then one astronomical unit is the distance basically from the sun to Earth. Right. And 12 AUs could endanger Earth and Titan at the same time. The original DMA was five light years in diameter, uh, and that is less than the distance between our solar system and Navarre. If it was right in the middle of the two star systems, there would likely be some gravity effects in both systems if it was there long enough over time, mm -hmm. you know, shifting orbits of planets, which might make over time their climates better or worse. But if it's only there for a few days before moving on, which is kind of what the methodology seems to be, if it was right in the middle between the two, there wouldn't be too much in the way of effects. On the other hand, maybe DMA2 is bigger than the first one, physically bigger, more mm -hmm. light years uh, across. Um, and so don't know. But yeah, I'm so tired of Earth being threatened by a, uh, an existential threat from, you know, V'ger to oh, yeah, um, right, right, right. Shinzon and his technobabble rays that were going to destroy Earth. <laughs> and The probe uh, in Star Trek Four. Yeah, you know, so done it so many times. Yeah, five light years, though. I mean, that's that's very big. It is. It's still not big enough, I think, given the size of the galaxy. There's the unlikeliness of that happening, but also, again, like, and I think this is your complaint, the threat to the galaxy, you know, this massive, you know, big threat yeah. um, that I we're mean, seeing enough of. You know, five light years, and, and that is a diameter, not a radius, but there mm -hmm. are a handful of stars within that range, within five light years of Earth. It was certainly yeah. Alpha Centauri is what I haven't looked it up recently, but around well, it's like four point two or something, four three four light years away. So you know, it could be more than one star system experiences some effects, but twelve astronomical units is considerably smaller than than one star system. You know, I mean, if it turns out though, if this DMA is being used also as a weapon, that would help. But that would conflict with the story we've seen so far, that it's simply a, a dredge. Well, we still, as Kovic, we'll see. Said, as Kovic said in this episode, we have no idea about the 10C. Anything we think we know about them, we don't know. Yeah. We're only guessing, and we can't assume that our guesses are correct. As you and I have both acknowledged, I hope that there's some kind of plot twist here, and this isn't, you know, the 10C are not bad guys. 
are not frivolously sending this DMA out and not caring if, if millions of people are killed as a result. You know, I hope that that is where they're going. That would be the most Star Trek way to mm-hmm. conclude this story arc this season. But we won't know for one or two more weeks. Yep, I agree or completely. Or three. Well, that's our look at, uh, I guess, what we agree is a somewhat disappointing episode of Discovery. But as always, we thank you for joining us this week. Now, next week, we're going to take a look at Discovery Episode 11 and the first episode of Star Trek Picard Season 2. It's exciting. You can keep track of our new episodes and other announcements on our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy, or you can subscribe directly at anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.